Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be moving around a little bit there. So if you get that marked in your Bible, on your Bible app, whatever you happen to have this morning. And we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. And uh, we still have a number of people away, kind of on the extended Thanksgiving holiday weekend. And some of you have been away and you just got back, so we welcome you back home. And some of you here for the first time, we certainly do want to welcome you. Thank you for gracing us uh, with your presence today. I'm in a series entitled, uh, we've been walking through this a while, entitled Caring. And you say, how long is this series going to go? Well, probably until we care. Uh, the first installment of this was a question entitled, Who Really Cares? I thought that was interesting. The feedback I got from that was very interesting, of some of the things we brought out and how people responded to that. And then the second part of it was entitled, Does No One Care? And of course, this was uh, a reflection of David's questioning in Psalm 142, uh, going back, we've had now two and a half messages in the last few weeks from that experience of David where he was hiding in the cave and, and uh, there are a lot of, a lot of messages that came up, come out of that experience. And then today, another question, and the question for today as part three, uh, I'm entitling, and, and just think about this as I say this, so do I care? Sometimes when people are leaving church on Sunday um, after service, they'll meet me at the door or somewhere between here and the door, and they'll say, boy, I, I, I wish so-and-so had been here to hear that message. Have you ever thought that or said that as you sit and listen to a message? Yeah. If you don't mind, if I can impose on you this morning... I don't want you to do that today. I want you to take this message personally. That's why it's in the first person pronoun, do I care? I want you to ask this question, how does it apply to me? Not how does it apply to someone else. Because you see, I'm preaching this morning about caring about others and I'm convinced as I stand here that it is a message that is very much needed by all of us. And that's why I'm posing the question to you to ask of yourself, so, do I care? Over the years, uh, and quite a few of them now, I can't tell you how many, as I've prepared messages... I've often thought of things that I need to hear. Matter of fact, sometimes I don't think of that at the outset, but as I move into a message and start developing some thoughts, I'm thinking, wow, I, I hope there's somebody there besides me that needs this. So this message this morning, this is my disclaimer, is just as much for me as it is for you, and it's just as much for every individual person here as it is for me. So let's jump right in. And I'm jumping in with a story from real life. A youth pastor was attending a Special Olympics event. And I just have to stop there and say, I love Special Olympics. I love, I love, I love Special Olympics. 
and uh, whenever I get a chance to see them or to, I used to, uh, I used to lead groups at the Special Olympics. We've we traveled with uh, large contingents to uh, Special Olympics all over different places. I don't have time to get into all that, but that, those were great years of my life, I'll tell you. And that's where handicapped young people and some not so young compete with tremendous dedication and enthusiasm. And this one event kind of stands out in my mind. There were many like it, but this was the 220-yard uh, dash. And contestants were lined up at the starting line. And you haven't seen anybody ready for battle like you see the Special Olympics people when they're ready to perform their event, regardless of what it is. And at the signal, man, they started running just as fast as they could. I mean, they were beating it down that track. Well, there was one young fellow by the name of Frankie, and he quickly took the lead. You could tell he was going to be out in front of the pack. He was just going to lead the way. And before long, he must have been 50 yards ahead of the, everybody else. And he was getting to that final the place where he would turn on the jets and head home. And he looked back and he saw that his best friend had fallen and hurt himself on the track. And Frankie stopped momentarily and he looked down the track right at the finish line. I mean, he looked at the finish line. He could see it from where he was. And then he looked back at his friend and people were hollering, keep running, Frankie, keep running, run, 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 go, go. But he didn't. He went back and got his friend and helped him up and brushed off the cinders. And the greatest picture you ever see, hand in hand, they crossed the finish line, dead last together. And as they did, the place went crazy. The people cheering because there are some things in this life more important than finishing first. There are some things in this life more important than finishing first. For instance, like finishing last with integrity. Thank God for the Frankies of the world. Now the wise man Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Here's the truth about life. We all fall or get knocked down at times, don't we? And how wonderful it is when we have a friend who cares enough to lift us up and to dust us off and to help us continue on towards the finish line. So I said it'd be Philippians chapter 2, and now we're going to go there. So if you have your Bible open, you can follow as we, as we move into this important study. In this chapter, we're going to listen to the Apostle Paul because he's the one writing, and he's such a good example of a tender, compassionate, and real friend. He shows us with his life what the definition of real friendship is. In fact, somebody has noted there are more than 100 people listed in the New Testament who consider themselves friends of Paul. And one of the reasons Paul had so many friends was because he was such a good friend Himself, And that's a biblical principle. You can read that in the Proverbs. If a man wants to have friends, he must show himself friendly. 
So we look at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. That I didn't tell you, but just drop down to verse 19 this morning. And I want us to consider, uh, consider a few very, very important lessons. We're going to read 19 in just a moment. But these important lessons are things that we all need to take home today and get into practice. First off, we need to cultivate a genuine interest in others. There are a lot of really key words in that one little sentence, but we need to cultivate a genuine interest in others. Here's Paul speaking in verse 19 of Philippians 2. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Now, Paul's a missionary. Paul's establishing churches. Paul is traveling all over the known empire at that time. And sometimes, like missionaries today, missionaries then kind of got worn out. And they write appeal letters. If you are following any missionaries or supporting any, and you didn't get at least one appeal letter in the last week, then you're not doing much to support because... If you're supporting, they're going to let you know that they're appreciative of that. And it would have been logical, I would say, for Paul to have written a letter saying something like, well, here I am again. I'm in prison here in Rome. What else is new? (laughs) And the conditions here are really, really deplorable. They're bad. I need help, so please take up a special offering and send it to me quickly. And if the people back home in Philippi had gotten that letter, I don't think they'd be surprised. That's not what he wrote. He doesn't do that. Instead, his concern is about these people. So he said, I'm soon going to send Timothy to find out how things are going with you. And he wants so much for the news that comes back to be good news. Now, it used to be, and I don't know if it's so much anymore, but people would kind of program their lives, their week, uh, into sections. And for a lot of people years ago, Saturday mornings were kind of like family checkup time. Yeah, married children would call their parents, and parents would call their children if they lived afar off, and maybe brothers and sisters would call each other if they're speaking to each other, and just to visit or just to hear about what's happening in each other's lives. And so when you hear good news, that just helps joy to abound, doesn't it? When you hear good news, it's like, that's what I wanted to hear. That's something that makes me happy. That's something that really makes my life worth moving on. And then I want to ask, how do you take the not-so-good news? Did you ever get any of that? If you would, take a moment and watch this video. The news of Gehrig's illness stunned the country. And on July 4th, a huge, sad crowd packed Yankee Stadium to pay tribute to their beloved hero. Babe Ruth came back, and the two old teammates ended their long feud. Manager Joe McCarthy presented him with a trophy.
At first, Gehrig was too moved to speak. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. I get emotional to the core every time I see that, and I've seen that whole clip, the entire commentary, several times. Lou Gehrig was the great first baseman for the New York Yankees. By the way, he died just two years, uh, not quite, two years after that particular ceremony. On June the 2nd, 1941, he died of ALS, which is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and... Uh, it later became known as, and today is called, oh good, Lou Gehrig's disease. Now you know why. The doctors really didn't know how to treat it, still struggling with that. So he was in the hospital, incapacitated for a long, long time, and they experimented with different drugs and different treatments, trying to find the one that would work. Just before he died... Lou called his friend, Bob Considine, and he said, Bob, I have great news. And, the, and Bob thought, oh boy, this is going to be good. Joe said, or Lou said, the boys in the lab have come up with a new serum, and they're trying it on 10 of us. And it seems to be working really well on 9 out of the 10. And Bob Considine asked, is it working on you, Lou? And Lou Gehrig answered, well, well, no, but nine out of ten, how do you like those odds? He was really joyful. That was no put-on play. That was a speech to 60,000 people from the heart. Because nine out of ten were being helped, even though he was the tenth one, he was happy and happy for them. I tell you, friends like that, that, with that kind of attitude, that's probably why Lou Gehrig is remembered with such fond memories nearly 70 years later, because he himself was such a good friend. And again, I switch over to the Apostle Paul, who I think was the very same way. Before he ever got concerned about himself, he was concerned for his friends, in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, if you have it open, you can just kind of go down and scan it. Here's what he writes. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests 
of, other work, of others. And so in other words, he is genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. Do you ever ask yourself this on Sunday morning? Why am I going to church? Am I going because I feel I owe a debt to God, so I'm going to try to pay it back by going to church regularly? Or do I go because I'm carrying this heavy burden, and I just hope today will be the day that it's lifted off my shoulders? Or am I going because, well, I like the music a lot, the fellowship is good, and even occasionally the preaching's not bad. Why, why do I go? Well, Bob, why should we go? Well, if we are genuinely interested in others, the church becomes a training ground where we learn how to help one another. This is not a mausoleum for lifeless churchy types. This is a restorative sanctuary for hurting souls. And when we ever cease to be that, we're out of business. We're done. So when you come to church, be on the lookout. Don't sit down and hope everybody's on the lookout for you. You come and be on the lookout. Maybe right now you're sitting near a get. You have no clue who that person is is or where they came from, or you don't think you've ever seen it. Be careful, though, about asking people if they're visiting, because they may have been here longer than you have. That's happened a number of times here. But you know somebody's here for the first time. Have you welcomed them yet? Do you get their name yet? Have you introduced yourself yet? Did you tell them, hey, you know what, I'm glad you came. I'm glad you're here. And let those people know that if you can help in any way or we can as a church to grow in their faith, that's the reason we're here. That's the reason we're here, church. Amen? Or when you hear of prayer needs and you learn of somebody who's having a really difficult time, write them a note. Let them know that you'll be praying for them. Or someone you know is struggling with some heavy burden of grief or great loss, hold their hand. Maybe weep, weep with them and, 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 and grieve with them. Let them know that you care. People say, well, you deal with people, death and dying as a, as a pastor, and you deal with people in their last hours, and you deal with people who have passed away, and the, the family doesn't know what to do, and you deal with People that were, were caught in a tragedy of some kind. And how do you handle that? You know, what do you say in times like that? Usually you don't handle it, and usually there's nothing you can say. Here's the best thing you can do is be present. Be present. Just to let them know somebody outside of that little circle cares. Now, I realize many of you are already doing that, and I praise God for you. And many of you in this church continue to do it, and I think our percentage of people who do that is higher than most, but it's still not where it should be. And it's very refreshing to know that we can care about each other without having hidden agendas to care about each other. We don't have to have any kind of an agenda, because you're my brother, or you're my sister, and we're together, and we're family in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be singing later on this morning, we are sons, we are daughters, and he's our father, and he's a good, good father, amen? amen. Come on, church. 
So there's some things happen when you're genuinely concerned about others. A couple of things I want to just leave with you quickly. First off, when you get genuinely concerned about others, you begin to forget your own problems. And, and I want to just throw this in. If you haven't experienced that yet in life, try it. And you'll see that what I just said is absolutely 100% true. We don't realize that very often, and we think, well, when I'm having trouble, I need, I need somebody to do something for me. Well, what you really need is to do something for someone else. And when we decide we're having trouble and we don't see a way out of this morass that we're in, then we, we, we need to do something indulgent or extravagant or over the top or just something just for me so I'll feel better. That's not the answer. The Bible teaches us, and by the way, psychologists in our world are starting to learn this, that the quickest way to get rid of our troubles is to become involved in helping someone else. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said long, long, long time ago. Isaiah 58, 10, uh, 11, and 12, if you're notating. He said this, If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, and you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. And the Lord will guide you always, and he will satisfy your needs and strengthen your frame. I read that over yesterday again a couple of times because I had been reading it and I said thank you Isaiah, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a great reminder. And the second thing that will happen when you're genuinely concerned about others is you'll find that when you're the one in trouble others are more likely to be good friends to you. And that's an encouragement. And that's a blessing. So the very first lesson I want us to take away this morning, and, I, and we're just learning from Paul's words. This is not original, and, and it doesn't just come from, from my head for sure. This is Paul just opening his heart so we can see what makes this man tick. And, and, and Paul's, the greatest thing from this first lesson is we need to cultivate uh, genuine, and by the word cultivate, I, we chose that word because cultivating takes in a lot. Huh? You have to plant that seed, you have to work on it, you have to keep it growing, you have to water it, you have to feed it, you have to keep, so you can't just say, oh, I helped somebody one time, how much do you need, here's $20. That, that's not what I call cultivating. It takes a while. And genuine interest. You could, you, you could take that word genuine, I suppose, and say slash sincere. I like the word sincere. Sincere comes from the Latin and the Greek, and it, and, and it means without a mask. Again, no hidden agenda. Sincere, without wax. And that's what they used in theater way back so many years ago for the masks. It was wax. So if you're behind a mask, that's not the real you. And that's where the word sincere comes from. 
So it needs to be a sincere, genuine concern or interest in others. And I'm going to get to that in a moment in another, coming from another angle. Here's the second lesson that I think we need to learn, very important lessons. We need to offer sincere encouragement to others. Learn to be an encourager. Some people will say to me, well, I, that's just not me. I just No, because you don't do it. You're not a great baseball player or football player or any other kind of player either because you don't do it and you don't work at it and you don't practice it. Who's to say what you might have been or what you might still be if you went at it and really did it? So this second lesson says that we need to offer sincere encouragement to others. And here we go with the Apostle Paul again in in Philippians 2, now verse 20. He says this about Timothy. Listen, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Hear what he said. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Paul is holding Timothy in high regard, highly, highly esteemed. I have no one else like him who takes a real, genuine, sincere interest in your welfare. Paul's talking here about Timothy. Paul had mentored Timothy. Paul had brought him along. Paul had worked with him. Paul had watched him grow in his faith from a young man. And now Timothy is an adult. And he has a very strong ministry of his own to many, many people. And Paul looks at him and says, I don't even know anybody like Timothy. Wow. That's something to have on your resume, isn't it? In fact, if you go to the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it translates that verse to say this. Here's how it transliterates, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Chuck Swindoll points out that the two Greek words used there, kindred spirit, are the words that mean, out of the Greek, same soul. Here's what Paul's saying. Timothy and I have the same soul. We are kindred spirits. You've heard that term before. You've heard the term like-minded and and. Swindoll says it means same soul friends. Wow, that's something. Now, when we talk about friendship, I have to realize there are different levels of friendship. Maybe you've noticed this. I mean, everybody's not your BFF. I know everybody wants to be, but not everybody is. And you're not everybody's BFF either. Just stop and think about that. So the first type of friendship is what we're going to call casual. Now, and, and I'll just give you a little, little role play here, what, what that's like. You probably know each other's name, or at least first name. And when you see each other, you probably greet each other in a friendly way. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How's it going? Good. Thank you. And the truth is, neither one of you may be fine, but you don't feel like unloading on the other person, so we just answer, I'm fine. How's everything going? Good. That's a casual friendship. What comes out of that? Practically nothing. 
Hey, we're casual friends. Can you help me today? Ah, uh, sorry, I can't help you today. My sister's friends, mother's grandpa's brother's grandson's uncle's fish died. It was so tragic. I can't help you today. I got big things on my mind. Some are close friendships where we enjoy going out, spending time with each other, doing things together. It's a deeper relationship. We share things that we wouldn't normally share with others, particularly with just the casual friends. But that's what all there is to it. It doesn't go down any further. And then there are very few, I'm going to underscore that, there are very few same-soul friendships where you are so close to each other that you think alike. How scary is that? And you are motivated and driven by the same things. It's very scary sometimes to be around somebody like that because they so think so much like you do that they know what you're going to what? Say even before you say it. That's not mental telepathy. Okay? It's not hocus pocus. It's just same soul type friendship where you're such on, the, on a wavelength. And I, and I want to add this. I believe that you're a very, I'm convinced, matter of fact, <clears throat> that you are very blessed if that same soul friend of yours is your husband and or your wife. In other words, your spouse. That's a special blessing. Because you can come home or go anywhere and be who you are. You don't have to pretend you are kindred spirits and there's love and there's understanding I didn't say you would agree on everything. If you do, that would be terribly boring. <laughs> but there is love and understanding and agreement and blessing between you that is so nice. Now, Paul keeps writing. And he says, this young man, Timothy, who's grown up to be such a great leader, he and I are same soul friends. And look what he says in verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul knows people. Paul even knows friends. And he knows what he's got in his friend Timothy. I think Paul's presenting a contrast here. He's saying, you know what? Most everybody else looks out for his own interests first, or maybe only. But Timothy is not like everybody. He's not like all the others. He's special, and he's interested in you, and he's interested in your welfare. That's important stuff. How we need friends like that. And, let me add this just so I don't let you off the hook totally. How we need to be friends like that. How we need friends like that, amen, and how we need to be friends like that. I mean someone who will pick you up off the track when you fall down, and they'll brush the cinders off of you, and they'll hold your hand, and they'll go on with you toward the finish line, and someone whose very friendship says, 
loud and clear, I care because you matter. So, do I care? Ask yourself that question. That's the kind of friend we need. Someone who says, I care about you so much that I'm willing to pick you up when you fall. I'm willing to dust you off. I'm willing to help you get on your feet. I'm willing to walk with you till you can walk by yourself. I'm willing to head you in the right direction. And I'm willing to stay with you as long as I have to until if we have to cross the finish line together an hour after everybody else. Who cares? I'm with you. Because I care. Here's why. Here's why. Because you matter. I, I, I'm so tempted to ask this and ask you to respond. I'll just ask it. Don't respond. I wonder if there's anybody sitting in this place this morning who would say, don't, don't respond, who would say, you know what? The reason I don't feel anybody cares is I don't really feel any, that I really matter. Or I could say, have you ever been there in your life? Like, it seems like nobody cares because it feels like nobody, nobody thinks I matter. Can I tell you, there are an awful lot of people like that in the world today. And if you've got somebody that, you, you, that cares about you because you matter, you need to buck up and say, there are other people around that don't have that good fortune, and I need to seek them out, and I need to help them, and I need to stay with them, and I need to help them to the finish line. Let me show you how much you matter. Can everybody stay with me for this? Are you with me now? Are we together? Good. In Genesis 1, how, what do we have in Genesis 1? Anybody just blurt it out? Huh? Creation. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Okay. Here's what the word says. On day one, God spoke, and night and day were created and divided. On day two, God spoke, and the skies and the seas were created. On day three, God spoke, and the land and vegetation came into existence. On day four, God spoke, and the sun, the moon, and the stars were created and meticulously arranged. On day five, God spoke, and sea creatures of all types and birds of the air were created. On day six, God spoke, and the beasts of the fields and all creeping animals and all other animal families were created. But also on day six. The word tells us in Genesis 2, verse 7, that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into the new creature's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul, or your translation may say, a living being. So he spoke, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke. And then, don't miss this, don't miss this. He took the dust of the earth and he formed you. Don't ever, ever, ever let me hear you say, well, I don't matter. He took the dust of the earth and he formed you. And why did he do that and not just speak us into existence? Because you and I need touch. Nothing replaces this. Hey, Dan. Hey. Nothing replaces that. 
I don't have to say anything. But there's something about that, what's transmitted there with touch, with feeling, with knowing that you exist because somebody cares. And he breathed. That's called the, the theonousis, the, the breath of God, life into us. So that means he formed you and he filled you. And over in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, we hear Paul again saying this. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Before the beginning of time. So hear it. He formed you, and he filled you, and he functioned you, or purposed you. Let's say those three words. Formed, and filled, and functioned. You have a function. Rick Warren calls it your purpose. You are formed by the hand of God. The one who spoke, and all the universe came into existence. But he reached down and took the dust of the earth and he formed you. And then he filled you. And then he functioned you. Wow. Do you matter? Do you matter? Here's what this is. I'm, here's what I'm teaching right now. This is what we call the guarantee of significance. And as John Maxwell said, this is my paraphrase, pretty, getting it pretty close. Once you experience true significance, the pursuit of success will never taste the same. It'll pale into insignificance. Look, I care. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I've been doing this for 40 some odd years. Because you matter. Let me tell you why I want to bring something new and fresh to you every time I stand before you. Bless God. Nobody's ever heard me preach this before. Why? Because you matter. God's given me something. I want you to have it. And I want you to hear it. And I want you to believe it. And I want you to apprehend it. And I want you to take it out of here. And I want you to put it into practice wherever you are in your life. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then loop it. I care because you matter. Say, well, I, I don't feel like I matter. That's something you're saying to yourself. God never said that to you and never would. You matter to me. Very first thing, you should matter to yourself. And always, 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 and always, you matter to God, our Creator. Let's give Him praise. What's the third very important lesson I want you to take away today? This is one we don't often hear about, maybe never. And there's so many sub-messages in here, but I'll try to stick to my original thoughts. We need to practice an unselfish release. Now that by itself doesn't explain a whole lot, but just let me keep working on it here. One more lesson. We need to practice an unselfish release. What I want you to do is drop down in Philippians 2 to verse 25. Hey, there's another actor on the scene. 
This is a man called Epaphroditus or Epaphroditus, however you want to pronounce it. You can pronounce it some other way if you want. You can call him Charlie. I don't care. He's Paul's friend, and that's what I care about. I think Epaphroditus anyway, out of the Greek and translated into today's English, probably is Charlie. So I think it's necessary to send back to you, Paul said, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Well, would you like to have that on your resume? Just, just write something on the resume there that tells us a little bit about who you are and who you hang out with and so on. Okay, the Apostle Paul calls me his brother, his co-worker, and his fellow soldier. That'll get you the job every time who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. Let me give you the background. We don't have time to tell the whole story. But Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi. That's, that's the, those are the people that Paul's writing to. And the church there was a strong supporter of the Apostle Paul. So when they learned Paul was in prison, again, they sent Epaphroditus to be with him, to be a source of encouragement and to assist him with his needs. Now, Epaphroditus, or Epaphroditus, he wasn't able to help Paul very long, and here's why. Because he became desperately ill. In fact, he almost died. Well, the news of his illness got back to Philippi, and the people there were concerned about him, and Epaphroditus became distressed. (laughs) He became more distressed about them worrying about him than he did about his own illness. I got to tell you, these early these people in the early church left some examples for us that if we just tried to live up to them, we would revolutionize the world. That's why the Bible says they turned the world upside down. Yeah. What we've been doing all these years is trying to write it up. No, we need to turn upside down again. People notice then. It would have been easy for Paul to say, oh, yeah, well, Timothy's leaving. He's leaving me now. Now you're, you want to go too. So what am I supposed to do here in prison all by myself? Who's going to help me? Poor old Paul. Yeah, what's going to... He didn't say that. Here's what Paul wrote instead to the church at Philippi. And he said, I am sending Epaphroditus back to you And I want you to welcome him, and I want you to encourage him. I'm so glad for that word. And I want you to look after him because he almost died for the cause of Christ. Make a note of this. A friendship that is really a friendship will release. There are two great examples right there. A friendship that is selfish, a friendship that is nosy, a friendship that is smothering, a friendship that is just all over the one befriended is not a true friendship. A true friendship must be willing to release. Examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, back to Philippi. Husbands and wives, you need to hear this. And I know we're doing parent stuff now, and we've got a great group growing, and I don't want to change anything you're learning or studying or hearing, but I want to say this out of my heart. You need to hear it. 
There comes a time in every home and every family when you have to let your children go, and that's a really difficult thing to do, and it's even harder if it's grandchildren. I didn't say that, but, but with God's strength and power and wisdom, all things are possible. Do you believe that all things are possible? Do you believe that there's nothing God cannot do? Good, I got your attention. Look up here if you're a mom and da- or a dad. I want you to listen to me very carefully. There are no perfect parents. I have a heavy heart this morning. Because some of you are carrying around a truckload of guilt, G-U-I-L-T, from your past. Particularly as it relates to your parenting or your lack of same, good, bad, or ugly, whatever it is. And I'm here to tell you that guilt is probably the most useless thing in the world. Stay with me. You have two choices today. You can hang on to your guilt and rob yourself of joy and of purpose and of fulfillment and of future growth. That's choice number one. Or you can trust God to fix it. And you already told me a minute or two ago, there is nothing he cannot repair. If you're a Christian parent and you're still carrying that suitcase full of guilt around with you, can I remind you of three little words that might get your attention? You are forgiven! Hello? Period. End of discussion. Or are you? Because it all starts, are you still listening? It all starts with forgiving yourself. So, here's the story of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. I'd like to tell you that this is the end of the story, but it really isn't. Because if you go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4... Paul is, guess where? In prison again. If you ask Paul uh, what the state bird of Rome was, he'd probably say jailbird. Uh, here he is in the Roman dungeon. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I got to tell you, the circumstances are very different this time. Very, very different. His friends are not there. There's no real way for them to come at this time. And Paul is facing certain death under Emperor Nero. And it will come within a matter of a few months of the writing of this. I don't know where the friends are. Maybe they're too far away. Maybe they couldn't get word to him. Maybe they'd tightened the screws down on Paul and he didn't have the liberty he had before. Maybe they're in prison themselves. Maybe they're dead. Who knows? Maybe, you know, they all died as martyrs. Maybe they just got tired of coming to the prison. 
Paul's been in prison a lot, and it's almost like, oh, boy, he's there again. So here's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16 and 17. Here it is. He said, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. That is the first defense in this, in this case. May it not be held against them. Sort of sounds like somebody from the cross, doesn't it? Father, forgive them, for they, they, don't, they don't know what they're doing. But everyone deserted me. That's a lonely prospect, isn't it? May, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side. And when everybody else leaves, the Lord comes in. You say, how do you define a best friend? Well, when all the world forsakes you, the best friend's the one who's still there. Or when a whole world goes out, that best friend comes in. That's how you can measure it. And at this point, poor Paul, he had no one to turn to. He didn't know why. He didn't know where they were. But he said, look, don't hold that against them. They've helped me so much. And while I was there and I was alone, the Lord stood by me. And what did he do? He gave me strength so that through me, through me, the old prisoner Paul here, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Aren't you glad the Gentiles heard it? Amen. Where would you be this morning? I'll tell you where, you, well, you don't want to know where you'd be. <laughs> That's not a good place. But that word went out and the Gentile world got a hold of it. And we're still proclaiming it 2,000 years later. Aren't you glad? Amen. Notify your face. <laughs> glad is this. That's not glad. That's self-serving, as a matter of fact. So that all the Gentiles might hear it. Hear this, beloved. Your best friend, the friend of friends, is Jesus. And on what grounds can I say that? He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And when you fall, he'll pick you up. And when he picks you up, he'll dust you off. And when he dusts you off, he'll walk beside you. And when he walks beside you, he'll take you hand in hand. And when he takes you hand in hand, he'll go all the way to the finish line with you. So, do I care? Yes, I care. But so does Jesus. Hmm? And so, I'm going to do something completely different for most of you. This morning, if you don't know him as your friend, if he is not your Savior and your Lord, then I'm going to extend his invitation for you to receive. I am here to tell you, without equivocation, I'm here to tell you that he stands ready to meet every need in your life starting with forgiving of your sins and giving you the promise of eternal life, thank God, if you'll just come. Will you come? 
I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, let's make a deal. I'm going to invite you to make your way up here. I'm going to stand off to the side in just a moment. And I'm going to invite you to come and stand with me while the song of worship plays. You've only got three minutes to get this done. You say, are you rushing it? No. You know whether or not God's working in your heart and whether the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And if he has, do not silence him. Today, coming to Jesus for what? For salvation? For committing to start? You say, you know, I'm saved, but I guess I've never really genuinely cared. Well, I'm going to start genuinely caring, and I'm going to start today, and I'm not afraid to stand with Pastor Bob to let the world know. Or maybe just to drop the guilt package you've been lugging around all these years, once and for all. Get free. Fly like a bird. Don't be timid. Don't be ashamed. Come stand with me. What are you doing? You're standing, we're standing in solidarity with the plan of God, but listen to this, for the glory of God. That's what this is all about. So as I slip over to the side, I'm going to ask you to come. Now, if you have something special that you need to talk to me about, as far as needing to be saved, needing to follow the Lord in baptism, whatever it is, you can speak to me, and I'll, like, I'll stay there and have prayer with you. We're going to continue on in worship, and we're going to have a wonderful time of worship together as a family in Christ. But first, we're going to listen to this song. I'm going to come. Will you come? Contain your joy inside 
Jesus